What the Beep Do You Know About Learning English is a podcast for intermediate to advanced learners of English, and some teachers might find it interesting too. The podcast aims to provide different perspectives on teaching and learning English, and at the same time develop our listeners' English skills. In this episode, we interview Vicky Hollett of Simple English Videos. We talk about how American English is more challenging than French or Japanese, negative politeness, and an idiomatic expression including Niagara Falls and a bucket. Okay, let's start rioting. In this segment, we find out about our teacher's origin story or where they got their teaching superpowers from. So, Vicky Hollett, what the beep do you know about teaching English? <laughs> well, I know a little bit. I keep learning <laughs> still, but um, I've been doing it a long time. Um, about 40 years ago, I wanted to travel, so mm-hmm. I took a job in Japan. And they were, at that time, they trained us as well. So I took a course in London and then went off to, to Japan. Oh, before that, I went to Algeria and taught there uh-huh. as well because the job in Japan was starting later. Then I went back to the UK and taught there. Then I came to the US about 20 years ago. And uh-huh. so I'm still learning to speak American. <laughs> and along the way, I've written a lot of books. Um, I used to specialize in business English. And these days as well, I make YouTube videos. And looking back at, I suppose, your earlier days in teaching, how, how do you think of things changed a lot between like being a teacher back when you're in Algeria and Japan and compared to now? Well, of course, we didn't have access to the web back then. It was all textbooks and whatever was in your head. Whereas mm-hmm. now... There are so many more materials and so many more people to learn from, actually, from YouTube and social media. Um, I think the other difference that's quite apparent is in language teaching itself. We've got corpus to guide us a lot of the time. Mm. So we can turn to corpora for, well, it's made a big difference in the dictionaries we use. And... Um, but also we can go and sort of research topics in terms of word frequency in ways we couldn't do before. I mean, that was always my dream when I was teaching business English all the time, yeah. to be able to research that vocabulary that was um, most useful for that field that the student was working in. Uh, yeah, I love those the corpus at the moment. There just seems to be so many, I suppose, more like user-friendly sort of tools coming out where you can, you know, actually guide students and get them using it as well, which is exciting. Yes. Yeah. It's a really handy handy thing for a teacher, that. And in a way, you know, the internet is one big corpus as well because you can just go to Google, type in, see what the next word is in the autocomplete or on your phone. You can see what the next mm. word is on the autocomplete and you're getting um, collocation advice sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's all there. Like, I mean, I can't imagine in Algeria, what resources did you have when you were teaching there um, 40 years ago? <laughs> we had a whiteboard. Uh-huh. In fact, it wasn't, I don't think it was a whiteboard. I think it was chalk. Um, chalk, yes. You can make that really annoying sound and drag the chalk down the board. Um, we, had, we had a textbook which was written 
oh, I think back in the 60s or 50s, which was, I can still remember some of the texts. One of them was, Mrs. Brown's kitchen, there is a cup uh-huh. on the table, it is dirty. Um, there is a sump- plate on the table, it is clean. Um, <laughs> they weren't very exciting. And there were sort of no activities, really, to go with it. Mm. So, yes, it was largely whatever you, whatever was in your head or whatever was yeah. in the students' heads. You had to be a lot more independent. Yeah. I suppose it was more supportive of, like, the, the dog may movement with the, <laughs> the teacher being the resource. And It was all dog may, actually, back then yeah. in lots of ways. I mean, because we didn't have the, the resources. And I think it stood me in good stead when I came to write books, you know, and textbooks myself, that Mm. I'd sort of grown up in an environment where that was what teachers did. You wrote your own materials all the time. And when when you moved into textbook writing, what what sort of books did you get involved with? Well, I was working at a school in Cambridge and we had a lot of um, business people coming to the school. And in the, it was late 80s, 1980s, and Mm -hmm. they were gearing up for Europe integrating at that time. And the EU were dropping a whole load of the financial barriers between the countries. Mm -hmm. 1992 was the year they were all waiting for. And um, so we were getting a lot of business students. And I was working with the with lots of teachers, and I couldn't find enough staff for the school. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of great English teachers around in Cambridge, but there weren't many people who had a business background. So what I used to do was, because I didn't have time to run training sessions or anything like that, I'd just write materials, put them in a drawer, and the teachers would take them to, to use with their classes. Mm-hmm. And I kept walking past this this filing cabinet for a few years thinking there's a book in there there's a book in there and then one day I just sent it off to lots of different publishers and luckily lots of them were interested in it Um, and we chose one and went with them and it turned into then they came back and commissioned other courses from there that they needed you know and the big textbooks started and and my books were always sort of very much speaking based because a lot of the students there, writing wasn't really a problem for them. There was no email at the time. Um, but being able to speak to people was their key, the key skill they wanted. Yes, lots of task-based speaking work. Very dogma, as you'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like, yeah, task-based yeah, teaching, I think, yeah, it's a good, good format. And then did you, like, I wonder, because you moved into YouTube, but before that you're already into video production with English learning or teaching? No. Well, actually, yes, I was, now you remind me, because when I was work, I was writing textbooks for Oxford University Press. That was one of the publishers I worked for for many, many years. And they mm-hmm. had an in-house video department back in the 80s and 90s. And I wrote a textbook for them that they wanted to make a video course from as well. And I was quite nervous about that, actually. But I was very lucky because they teamed me up with a guy 
who was an experienced television and film writer. In fact, he's still got he's gone on now to win BAFTAs and an Oscar. And he was terrific. And I I was really, really lucky working with him because he taught me a lot about writing a script for film rather than writing a script for a classroom book. And then with your YouTube channel, how did that all come about? Which is called, let me forget, forget, Simple English Videos. (laughs) Well, that started... That started slowly. We were messing around. I told my husband to go off and buy me a camera in the days of flip cameras. Do you remember those little cameras? They were about the size of a phone. And I said, go and get me a camera that's the same size, that will fit in my handbag. And um, But, of course, I forgot that he had a background in film and television. So the next Mm -hmm. thing is he comes back with this massive camera. I can't fit in my handbag unless I take everything else out. Uh Um, So we just started messing around with that and playing with green screen and that sort of thing. We didn't take it very seriously. And then Mm -hmm. in 2016, we won a prize that YouTube had called Next Up. And it meant the prize was that there were about, I think, about 15 or 20 of us. We went to New York and had a week's training at the YouTube studios there. And that was great. They taught us all sorts of things about, yeah, and, you know, learning about camera work and, uh, and, um, and also sort of branding and designing a set and all sorts of things that, that I had no idea about. Mm. Um, and we started taking it a bit se- more seriously then and so we've managed to produce a video every week since then um, it's it's been slow <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. we, we've yeah. been a sort of slow and steady growth um, but we keep learning and we're doing alright now we think we've got about uh, well over 100,000 subs and um, that's very impressive lots of loyal fans who we adore um and we have fun doing it jay's got a background in film and television so he likes it it's just a sort of hobby of ours we don't have a living room anymore we have a green screen up instead (laughs) (laughs) oh you can always you know put in backgrounds when you're having breakfast and stuff um (laughs) so you sort of i mean I mean, you were involved in like the course book writing side of things and then you moved to YouTube video. So if there's any student listeners, which way do you think is a better way to learn? Go to a classroom with a course book or get them to subscribe to your uh, YouTube channel and learn that way? I think both of them. You know, mm-hmm. ideally, ideally you want to get as much exposure as you can. Um, I I mean, it's a good teacher in a classroom and a nice other students to practice with and learn with, that's invaluable. So mm-hmm. I would say do both. Just make sure you enjoy it, you know. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's good. I, I have my own school, so it's good that the, um, the classroom isn't dead yet. Oh, <laughs> There's definitely still room not. for both. Yeah. Go along to Damien's school. <laughs> yes, come to Thailand. Our second segment is called Study Tip of the Iceberg, where we find out our guests 
number one English language learning tip. So, Vicky, what's the secret to English success? The secret to English success is a little and often. There's nothing very hard about learning English. It's not rocket science. Anyone can do it. But the thing is, it is quite a big language and you've got to pace yourself. So keep taking small steps. So ultimately, it all boils down to staying motivated. So Mm. finding things you want to do that will keep you doing a little bit every day. Yeah, it's definitely about, about habit formation. Yeah. So maybe watch a YouTube video or you know, <laughs> a movie or play computer games, you know, with, with people from other countries or whatever. You often pick up lots of language that way. Whatever it is that turns you on, mm-hmm. go follow that. And a little and often. A little and often, yeah. And with, with your... Or your video. So if someone watches us, how, how do you think they should approach, you know, watching one of your YouTube videos to get the most out of it? Um, oh, I haven't thought about that. Um, I think they should aim to enjoy it. We tend to have a <laughs> lot of jokes in our videos. Um, yeah, yeah, I think humour is important. And um, we also get a lot of responses, you know. We try to respond to most of the people who write to us. And they're often quite fun to read. And I see sometimes people are connecting when they're commenting and responding to one another. So sometimes you can meet new friends there. What else? And, of course, write to us and tell us what, what kind of video you liked, you'd like next. Yeah, if the students are getting involved with your videos and commenting on them, they're all using English in that process, which is good. I haven't got anything else to say, Damien. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is Language Unmasked. We find out about our guests' own experiences of learning a second language. So, Vicky, could you tell us a bit about your own language learning journeys? Yes. Well, when I was at school, we learned French and Latin. I can't Mm. say it either way. I can't say the Latin was very useful, but I did need the French because I went to work in Algeria and there it, mm. you had to speak Arabic or French. And there were, you really did need to speak Arabic or French because um, nobody spoke English in, back mm. then. And um, so what I discovered was my schoolgirl French was really pretty useless and um, but when you're thrown into an environment like that where to survive and get your food and just live you learn pretty quickly so I could get by in French by the time I left Um, and then I went to Japan and of course Japanese was a whole new ball game and much more difficult to learn plus strangely I didn't get many opportunities to use it In Japan, I found the only people who would speak to me were my Japanese teacher and the taxi drivers. So I did learn a lot of taxi English for talking to taxi drivers. Sorry, Japanese (laughs) for talking to taxi drivers. Why didn't anyone speak to you there? They were too scared at that stage? or? Oh, I think they presumed that they wouldn't be able to understand me. So if I approached someone and asked in my best in Japanese, 
what's the way to this place mm. or that place. They sometimes run away. And even in the local corner shop, the lady who sold me my vegetables, I'd go in and ask for them in Japanese, but she'd reply in English. So mm-hmm. it was surprising that I didn't get as much opportunity there. Now, I've let both those languages basically die and mm. get rusted out. Um, they're so rusty now. They, the only time they surface is if I'm traveling. Sometimes I'll say I, <clears throat> we were in Brazil a while ago, mm. and we, we don't speak Portuguese or Spanish, but we have what we call general purpose Latin, <laughs> which is <laughs> where we go say to, we want some water, so we'll say aqua, por favor, or <laughs> uh, low, or agua, and we keep trying around until one of the words hits, you know. Um, but we were in a taxi in Brazil mm-hmm. and the taxi broke down or was having some problems and we didn't speak Portuguese but I, f- I spoke to the taxi driver and he and Jay looked at me very surprised and I mm-hmm. suddenly realised I was speaking Japanese to him <laughs> 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 and so somewhere in my brain you know it had said, this is the language you use to talk to foreign taxi drivers. It <laughs> <laughs> had been so embedded since your uh, Japanese time. It would have been more surprising if, if he had answered in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was surprised I knew it, you know, but mm. somewhere or the other it came up to the surface in that context. Um, but now I'm learning another foreign language, which is mm. American English. <laughs> Your most challenging one so far. <laughs> in some ways, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, America has been more of a culture shock to me than Japan mm. or Algeria, which is really peculiar if you think about it. But it, yeah. the, the thing is, you expect everything to be the same and then you find it isn't. And it's more mm. of a shock when that happens here. Because because I expected it all to be the same. What sort of things do you notice? I suppose with with um, English students, they're always sort of asking for these differences. What are sort of the I don't know a big one that you found? The big thing I found is a different style in politeness. Mm. Um, there's a branch of linguistics called pragmatics, which is a relatively young branch of linguistics. And it's mm-hmm. about the secret meanings, the hidden meanings that go with the words. And a lot of the time, there are the things that we infer from the context. And this, the, a lot of this, the work that's been done in pragmatics has been done about politeness and different styles of politeness in different countries. And so, for example, in the UK, we have what we would call a negative politeness style. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not, negative doesn't mean bad here, it's just the technical term, you know, like you can mm-hmm. have a positive and negative current of electricity, but this is about mm-hmm. negative, we just call it negative politeness. And basically what it's about is we like to let people do what they want without getting in their way and interfering with them. They can go about their business and we're not going to interrupt them in any way. Um, Mm -hmm. 
In America, the style is more to do with being open and warm and friendly and welcoming people in, which is a positive politeness style. Mm-hmm. And it manifests itself in all sorts of strange ways in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that both aspects of politeness aren't important in both cultures. They are. But there's a sort of different weighting to them in mm-hmm. in the UK and the US. So, for example, if it comes to meeting new people, you know, I sort of bump around at a party um, hoping that something will happen so that I can talk to the person next to me. Whereas yeah. Jay will stroll in and say, hi, how are you doing? I'm Jay. <laughs> <laughs> So there's sort of this different um, way of approaching. Yeah, it is interesting. The, the sort of pragmatic side. I'm just. I was just thinking about Australia because I'm from Australia, where we sit in. I think we'd probably. Well, for me personally, maybe I sit more on the British. For me, but you'll be sitting somewhere between the two of us. I think. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, in Japan, in a way, I felt very comfortable because it was much more like the UK in many ways. The negative politeness. Yes. Um, And it's not that one's good and one's bad. You know, they're just different. Mm. But there are all sorts of places where where it comes up. Um, Compliments are a good one. You know, you might compliment a stranger in the US. You might be standing Mm -hmm. next to someone in a supermarket queue and they'll start a conversation with you, you know, by saying, oh, that's a nice purse or whatever. (laughs) And, um, I mean, it could happen in the UK too, but something would have had to have sparked it before you mm-hmm. would interfere with their life in that way. You know, it's why, we, it's why Brits don't talk to people in railway carriages. It's not that we're being aloof <laughs> or arrogant. We're just sort of politely respecting your privacy and your space, whereas yeah, people yeah. are much more likely to tell you their life history in the first three minutes of meeting them in the U.S. <laughs> you know, those stereotypes come from there's somewhere. Less, yeah, barriers. <laughs> yeah, it's important to unknow those underlying things because then you get a bit of picture of the whole language and culture. Oh, the last thing I thought for this segment, from your, I know you said it was quite rusty, your uh, Latin, French and Japanese, um, but did you have any favourite expressions left over <laughs> from those times? <laughs> okay, I can give you... A couple, right. Well, for example, Mm -hmm. in French, I remember going to someone's house for dinner. And it was already a bit strange in Algeria that there was this young woman traveling on her own. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were having dinner and someone offered me some more potatoes. And I replied, no, no, I can't eat any more because I'm pregnant. And they thought it was a bit strange, and only later did I realise that I was trying to say I'm full. Oh, okay. <laughs> you slipped over into, into pregnancy. Yeah, but actually I've probably had more embarrassing moments in America with with mm. learning to speak American. I can think of lots. Um, I mean, the word quite, you constantly have to be careful about because in British English – it mm. means fairly or pretty. So, you know, it's quite nice means it's fairly nice, pretty nice. Whereas in in American English, um, it means 
completely or 100%. So there was a guy who went on a first date with one of my British friends and told her that she was quite pretty. He was lucky to get a second date, you know. In its raining swear words and idioms, we find out our guest's number one expression or swear word in English. So, Vicky, what are we going to focus on today? Swear word, idiomatic expression, or a bit of everything? I've got some idioms that I've mm. had to learn in the United States for you that I really like. It might be a learning experience for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I told you that it was like folding the New York Times in a high wind, what would that mean? <laughs> um, a difficult job? Yes, yes. It is? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay, I can survive in America now. I can fold the New York Times. <laughs> and the, the reason for this idiom is that the New York Times is famous for being a really big, thick paper, particularly oh, okay. at the weekend, and it's quite hard to handle because it's quite large. You know, it's a broadsheet. It's not a, not a tabloid. Do you ever use that one yourself? No, I've been looking for a good expression, a good time to use it. But there is another one that's similar that I've been mm-hmm. that I have used myself, uh-huh. which is it's like trying to change the course of the Niagara Falls with a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one is probably more more approachable. I mean, we've got broader, could get broader audience than maybe the New York Times one. <laughs> Our final segment, In the Red Room, is inspired by Twin Peaks. So, Vicky, can you give us a bonus expression and we'll either speed it up or slow it down and then the first listener to decode that expression and leave an audio comment on the podcast will get a special prize. Righto. This is similar to the other expressions you heard and it is... It's like moving jello to the wall. (laughs) okay that's an interesting one we'll see if any of our audience will be able to pick that one up (laughs) so that's the show and i'd like to yeah thank you for making the time to come and be interviewed i think i've learned a lot today especially about those differences with uh, american and british english so thanks for sharing it's been a pleasure, and I and please come and check out my channel at Simple English Videos on YouTube. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely add in the blog post and the description of the podcast a link so you can find that, and they're great videos, and I think you can learn a lot if you subscribe to Vicky and Jay's channel, yeah? Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. I hope you enjoyed our fourth episode with English language YouTuber, Vicky Hollett. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave an audio comment at Anchor to have the chance of winning the prize. Also, head over to www.englishriot.com for bonus material, including how to use some of the English expressions from this podcast episode. Finally, sign up for English Riot's e-newsletter, The Sledgehammer, to get access to weekly English learning tips. See you in episode five, where we interview fellow teacher podcaster, Matt Turner, from the Tephalology podcast. <laughs>